Due to a technical difficulty, the end of this sermon has been lost. We apologise for the inconvenience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and that you have not left us to ourselves, but you've sent your Holy Spirit to be amongst us as we gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold Jesus in all of his saving glory. In his name we pray. Amen. And it's uh, my great uh, honor and pleasure to be with you uh, as uh, it's my first trip to uh, Australia and uh, really uh, delighted. I've been very busy this week and will be uh, busy for the duration uh, so that I told my young daughters that I'm unlikely to see a kangaroo uh, while uh, here. Uh, but I've really enjoyed uh, being uh, in Sydney and uh, sharing in the ministry uh, with brothers and sisters here. And uh, to be with you uh, this morning, sharing uh, in uh, the Word of God. Uh, I've uh, been friends uh, with uh, a couple of Jensen's uh, through the years. Uh, I met uh, first uh, Peter, uh, Michael's father, and then uh, Michael and I were at Oxford for a bit together, and then uh, Philip, his uncle, has even preached from the pulpit at the cathedral in Birmingham. And I like to say that Peter is a great encouragement to me. Uh, Michael makes me think, and Philip tells me what I'm doing wrong. Uh, and, uh, and that seems to be uh, the case. Uh, But we look at Genesis chapter 17, and I draw your attention to it this morning as you continue your series on uh, Abraham, or as we know him up to this point, uh, Abram, who's been called out of Ur, and God has made a covenant with him uh, and made covenant promises to him. And now uh, Abraham is visited once again uh, by God some 13 years after that first visit. And just as a refresher about the nature of covenants uh, being uh, supremely important for us to understand uh, what exactly is happening here, because what we see in chapter 17 is a little bit of a turn. Uh, No longer is it God simply declaring, this is what I will do, uh, but actually says to Abram, you shall. Uh, Now all of a sudden, Abram is given uh, a part in this covenant promise. And yet, we still understand that covenants are one, they're unilateral. Uh, They are from God uh, to us. He is the one that makes the covenant with us. He's not uh, in the business of negotiating with us or or us coming with him uh, with terms. Uh, But in fact, God makes that covenant. Uh, Two, it's an eternal covenant because God is sovereign and he's a God uh, of promises that indeed uh, he will see it unto the very end. So when God says to Abraham, I will make you a father of multitudes of many nations and Sarah herself will give birth to many kings. uh, That uh, promise uh, has been worked out through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here we sit uh, today in Sydney, Australia as children of Abraham. Uh, Do you have that children's song here? Um, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. I I will spare you the singing. Uh, But you know the, the song. And so the promises are eternal. And so here we sit as the spiritual children of Abraham promised to him all the way back in the book of Genesis. And finally, that covenants are gracious. Uh, It's about God's one-way, never-ending love for us in Jesus Christ. And so when God uh, makes a covenant, it exhibits this gospel message of uh, God making a commitment and a promise uh, to people that more often than not don't deserve it. 
Uh, You can't earn it. Uh, It's all a result of God's gracious favor uh, to us. And yet even in light of that, we see this morning in chapter 17 that Abram is given a role in this. Uh, God says, you shall do the following. And so how does Abram relate to this and how do we relate uh, to our role when it comes to God's covenant with us? Well, we see here in chapter 17 that right out of the gate, God does what he always does. He takes the initiative. Uh, He's the mover uh, in all of God's gracious acts. He is the one that initiates. And so he uses phrases like, I may, I have, I will. These are things that God is going to do. And he approaches Abram some 13 years after that initial visitation. And we do know that God's covenants are not action consequence. When God says, you must, he's not saying, you must do this, because if you don't, I won't do what I've promised. Uh, That's not it at all. Uh, God is sovereign, but it is no less true and no less important, though not a prerequisite for God acting, that we must do something. And so if you are in a marriage relationship and your spouse says the same thing, but in two very different ways, if you loved me, then you would fill in the blank. Well, if that's prescriptive, if you love me, you would do the washing up. Well, that's that's a rough road to hoe, because what happens when you don't do the washing up? Does that mean you don't don't love them? In fact, I got into some trouble once early on in marriage when my wife kept repeatedly asking me, why do you love me? And I finally was honest and said, I don't know. I just do. And then I overheard her some years later talking to a friend on the telephone. And it caught my ear because I heard her telling the story to a friend. And I wondered, how am I going to recover from this? Because she's obviously latched on to it. But she said it. She said, you know, that was at the time a very depressing thing for my husband to say to me. But now that we've been married for a little bit, I think of it. What if he had said, I love you for your winning personality? Uh, I love you for your beautiful eyes, uh, for your luxurious hair. Uh, And then one day, she's just not that interesting anymore. And her hair is faded and her eyes too. Uh, What if that thing that the love was hung upon was no longer a reality? But that's just the nature of God's love for us. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Uh, Because I love you, this is what I do. And so in the same way, uh, but nonetheless, when we encounter that love uh, in our own lives, it actually propels us to want to love back. Uh, And not out of obligation, but out of joyful uh, obedience. And because indeed, because he first loved us, we are now able to love. And so what does this something look like? What does it look like in the life of Abraham here in Genesis 17? Well, we read that God uh, promises uh, Abraham or Abram at this point a son. And uh, Abram is right to laugh, wouldn't you? 
Abraham is, uh, Abram is nearly 100 years old. His wife, uh, Sarah, 10 years younger. He married a younger woman. She's 90. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, it's, of course, he's, he's going to laugh. And, and why is he laughing? Because he knows that this is biologically impossible. In fact, Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 4, verse 19. He, that is Abram, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. God promises Abram and Sarai a son here because we know that if they are going to have a son, who is going to provide? It has to be God. It has to be God because uh, Abram and Sarai have been brought to their very end. There uh, is, Paul says, that, that they're as good as dead. Uh, it's impossible for them to have a child. And so if the child is going to be, it has to be through God. Now, of course, uh, Abram believes, uh, but this is one of the wonderful things about Abram. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. A wonderful prayer from St. Peter. Uh, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I trust you, but what about Ishmael? What about him? Couldn't we just have him as uh, a safety net, just in case this whole thing doesn't work out? And indeed, God's office is often found at the end of our ropes. We have to be brought to a place of death, of brokenness, I think, before our eyes can actually behold who God is in all of his glory in Jesus Christ. We have to be brought to the place where we cry uncle, that we have no other recourse in our lives but God himself. And yet many of us in the Christian life are a whole lot like Abram. Uh, and would echo the prayer of uh, my grandfather who used to say, work as if it depended upon you, but pray as if it depended upon God. Which really means what? Work really hard because God might not come through. Uh, my grandfather was the same man where we would pull into a parking lot at a shopping center, and he would often pray, Lord, help us find a parking spot. And every once in a while, before he even finished the prayer, he would say, a car would be pooling out. And so he'd say, Lord, help us find a park. Never mind. And then we would go in. Uh, it's a silly story and yet illustrates uh, what many people believe that, uh, okay, Lord, I'm going to believe you, but I'm going to do everything in my power uh, to line things up because there's still a part of me that believes you might not come through. And these are the parts of our lives that are probably uh, the hardest to let go of. Uh, there are relationships. Uh, there uh, are, you can even call it our deep, dark, unevangelized continents uh, in our hearts. In the United States, I'm sure you don't have this because you're so much tidier than we are, uh, but we have what I would call no-go areas in our house. Uh, the areas that when you have people over, if they stepped into that one room or into that garage, you would fall over dead. Uh, you are just, uh, or in America, we also have basements uh, where we stow things. And uh, it's our job to keep people out of those areas. But inevitably what happens is you're having a party or something and, and someone's wandering around the house and they open the closet door. And if they're not killed by the avalanche, uh, they, uh, you immediately make some excuse. Uh, 
I've been working on that closet for three years. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that you've been working on it for decades, uh, and you've never really been able to get it out of control, and so you just want to put it behind a closed door. And in the same way, when Jesus comes into our lives, we're very happy for him to be in our sitting room. Uh, we're very happy for him to come and uh, be a part of those areas that we in our own strength can keep neat and tidy, but where Jesus wants to go is into the basements of our hearts. Because we can't get it together. Uh, We're at the end of our ropes, and so above all, even though our hearts resist it, what we need is the Lord Jesus Christ to enter into those unevangelized parts of our hearts and to begin to sort out our closets, to be able to sort out graciously uh, our basements and bring us together. And so in the same way, Abraham says, how can this be? Uh, This is an area of my life that you know that Sarah and I have longed for a child, and yet what you're saying is almost too good to be true. Uh, Maybe we should consider Ishmael. But God says no. And he does bring forth the covenant of circumcision. He says, this is what I want you to do. But God doesn't just put it on Abram. He does a couple little things that make all the difference in this passage. One, he he changes Abram's name. He changes Abram's name to Abraham, which really is not that significant a change, or Sarai to Sarah. It's just two little letters, A and H. Uh, But it's significant on a number of levels. One, this letter H, or uh, these two letters, H and A, ha, or in Sarah's case, ah. Uh, Small changes, but what they represent is a breath. A breath, and the Hebrew word in the Old Testament uh, for breath is ruach, which is the same word that's used to talk about the Holy Spirit of God. So early on in the book of Genesis, when uh, the Spirit of God is hovering upon the waters, uh, that's God's ruach. That's God's breath. And so what God does is he changes their name by inserting his breath, his spirit, into them. Not leaving them to themselves, but actually saying, I'm going to abide with you. I'm going to abide in you. And even the language that is used as he makes them spiritual children, he says that you will walk before me. This is the image of if you've ever had a little child as you're walking down the road uh, along uh, the sidewalk, or I know you have another word for it, but I can't place it right now. Uh, But as you're walking along, uh, the child is playing in front of you. And there's the parent trying to to keep them uh, in the straight and narrow. Uh, And yet when God's spirit comes into our lives, uh, it's a bit like when the parent and child are walking down the road and they're holding hands. And isn't that such a lovely picture? And it really warms your heart and uh, the child loves it and the parent loves it. Uh, But how much more does your heart leap when you see that parent who's holding the hand of their child actually scoop that child up and take them into their arms? And in the same way, when God places his Holy Spirit within us, God takes us up into his arms and holds us close. And so now their names are representative. They mean basically the same thing that Abram being a a father of many, now being a father of multitudes, and Sarah uh, being a princess, uh, one who would give birth to even kings. They have a new identity in God. And that's the significance of a name. 
that they're not who they once were, but they've been given new life in God by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And also God makes himself known in a new way. Here he says, I am God Almighty. And the word, the Hebrew here is El Shaddai. God Almighty is the way that it's almost always translated. And that's right, that I'm all powerful. I'm your heavenly father. I'm the one who's going to provide for you. I'm going to be the one who's going to order the unruly parts of your and aspects uh, of your life. And and I'm your savior and I'm your God. Uh, But the root word of Shaddai is the Hebrew word Shad, which is almost exclusively used for the breast of a nursing mother. And so not just dwelling in the power and the protection of God, but being nurtured by him, being sustained by him, being his child through adoption by grace. He is there, El Shaddai. That Abraham and Sarah would put their whole hope and trust in God as their everything And being brought to the end of their ropes, they realize that they cry uncle. They come to a place of obvious need. And yet those of us who are high-functioning individuals, it's hard for us to come to that place sometimes. Dudley Ting was a wonderful Anglican preacher in the mid-19th century in America. And his last sermon was to a group of the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. And there were over 5,000 men there. And at the conclusion of his sermon, over 1,000 of them came forward to give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And during that week, uh, Ting was not just a great preacher, but he really cared about people. And so he had developed farms on the outskirts of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he could employ people who needed work and provide grain uh, for uh, bakeries that uh, couldn't normally afford it. It was a wonderful ministry. And while he was out inspecting one of the farms, he walked into one of the mills and his sleeve got caught in the cogs of one of the mills and he lost it, his arm. And as he lay dying, less than a day later, his final words were, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And his 